Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. If you're in the Orlando area, we hope you're able to join us for one of our services. Please check out faithassembly.org for more information or follow us on social media at faithORL. We hope this message will be an inspiration to help you find all that God has for your life. Enjoy the message. Let me just say this. I, um, I really believe tonight the message I said this morning was pastoral. Tonight is very prophetic. Um, and I mean that in, in a way, and I don't want to be negative. And this is hopeful. This is not negative at all. But I do believe as we read the scripture and we look into the future, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, and, and we're probably going to have some days, maybe not too far into the future, where it feels like the earth beneath us is shaking and the mountains are about to fall in the heart of the sea. And you're going to have to have something you can hold on to that's going to last, okay? And so what I'm sharing with you tonight is going to have an immediate revelation. There is a right now rhema word in this moment. We're going to apply before we leave this room. But I pray that what we say tonight, that you'll file away and you'll hold on to. It'll be the foundation of your life when it does feel like the earth is about to give way beneath your feet. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24 tonight. I've been preaching the gospel for 32 years. And out of all the things in those 32 years I could go back to, of all the things I could say tonight, I could not shake this. I just could not shake this. I went to John today and I just said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something to sing tonight at the end of the service that has to do with the kingship of Jesus. I mean, we got to crown him as king tonight. We got to remind ourselves who he really is. And, and he said, pastor, we're going to sing praise to the king of kings tonight. I'm, I'm loving the way God is orchestrating this already. We've already kind of inched into that. For some reason, I, I feel like the Lord wants us to see and understand the kingship of Jesus and why it matters, all right? That's the focus of tonight, the kingship of Jesus and why it matters. With the grief and the loss and the division, the polarization that is seizing our culture, along with an incredible degree of uncertainty regarding the future, just in the last few days, government leaders whispering concerns about nuclear war and then the feeling we've had for some time about financial collapse and uncertainty, our emotions are all over the place. And we're longing for something that we can hold on to that transcends our emotions. We're looking for a truth that can be trusted. Something to anchor our lives in isn't going to change with every election cycle on the American scene. We need a truth that's going to last. Luke 24 holds our hope. It describes events that unfold immediately after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I wish I had time today to pick this. I did an entire series on this last year. I wish I had time to pick Luke 24 apart. I don't, but I want you to see how it flows. The chapter can be broken down into four sections. And the first section is verse 1 through 12. It's the women finding Jesus, finding the tomb empty. There were several women followers of Jesus that come to a tomb. They find it empty. They run back to the, main, the remaining 11 disciples and tell them that Jesus has risen. The men don't believe them, so Peter goes to see for himself, and he's astonished at what he finds. The second segment of Luke 24 begins in verse 13, and it describes what we call the walk to Emmaus in verse 13 to 34. Jesus appears to two of his disciples walking on a road to a village called Emmaus. He conceals his identity from them. He doesn't let them know who he is, and they are heartbroken. They're mourning over the crucifixion of the one they thought was going to be the Messiah. 
They're devastated. If he's been crucified, it can't be true. But while they walk, Jesus explains to them what the Scripture has to say about the Messiah and that the crucifixion and the resurrection were all a part of God's sovereign plan to rescue and redeem lost humanity. At the end of that conversation, as they got closer to Emmaus, Jesus reveals his identity to them. And these men are shocked that they are standing in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. The third segment in Luke 24 begins in verse 35, where Jesus appears to his disciples. The two men, the disciples, that were on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, when they realized they're with the resurrected Jesus, they run to tell all the other disciples that they've seen Jesus alive. And Jesus suddenly appears to his disciples in a room, and there's this incredible moment of disbelief that turns into a moment of awe and amazement. And then the last segment of the chapter is Jesus' ascension into heaven, verse 50 through 53. And that's tonight, that's what I want us to focus in on. And it doesn't look like all that much as we read it, but there's a lot more going on here than what it appears. Verse 50 says, Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting up his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. This is not just the ascension of Jesus to heaven. This is the ascension of Jesus to his throne. This is the climactic ending to a passage that is all about the kingship of Jesus. The very purpose and point of the resurrection was to point all of us to the kingship of Jesus. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 24, twice, Jesus refers to himself as the king. Now, you and I might miss that because he uses a different English word. He doesn't say king. He uses the word Messiah. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to the two men that were walking with him, verse 26, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses all the way to the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then again, after appearing in the house where his disciples had gathered in their fear, Scripture says in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Twice, in a matter of a few verses, Jesus refers to himself as the Messiah. I know when you hear the word Messiah, we typically don't think king because they sound nothing alike. And in English, they are typically not synonyms. But to the Jewish men that were a part of these conversations, the connection would have been blatantly clear. Jesus was claiming to be the one true king. The word Messiah in Hebrew is Mashiach, which literally means the anointed king. So in Luke 24, the way Jesus goes out, he leaves this earth, is by calling himself the one true king. And then he ascends into heaven to take his throne. So if the purpose of the resurrection is to validate the kingship of Jesus, why should that matter to you tonight? Let me answer that by explaining to you why the kingship of Jesus matters. An Episcopalian minister came to the U.S. visiting from England, and he went to the Revolutionary War Museum in Philadelphia. 
He looked through all of the memorabilia of, of America's revolt against British monarchy. And he noticed a sign in the museum that at one time hung above a Philadelphia tavern during the American Revolution. And that sign read in big bold letters, we serve no sovereign here. He said of all the things he experienced coming from England to the U.S., that sign summed up the difference in culture, philosophy, and the psychology of the American people more than anything. Australians, Canadians, Europeans, and much of the world have some positive memory to bowing their knee to a king. But the American mindset is, we serve no sovereign here. And the fact that I'm saying that, there's a patriotic spine stiffening in some of you. We don't bow the knee to anybody. I am an individual. I decide what's right or wrong for me. We serve no sovereign here. Here's the problem. That mindset, we serve no sovereign here, hasn't just impacted our culture and our philosophy and our psychology. It's impacted our religious belief and the way we perceive God. C.S. Lewis wrote an article many years ago. It was called Equality. And in the article, let me paraphrase, he basically says, don't misunderstand me. I'm absolutely in favor of democracy. We are all sinners in a world governed by imperfect and sinful people, and we need the checks and balances of a democratic government. But Lewis made this point. Democracy is the medicine. It is not the food. Democracy may be the best governmental medicine for what ails a deeply flawed human race, but it is not the food that fills the deep hunger and the craving in the human heart because God created humanity to have a sovereign. That's right. We were created to be ruled by God. He hardwired the human race to crave his kingship, to passionately desire his kingdom. The word kingdom literally means the king's dominion. That's why he told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a hole in every human heart that is always going to feel empty without God's sovereign rule there. His dominion causes our lives to flourish when his rule and reign prioritizes our life. Only then will we live and experience life as it was intended. The sovereign rule of God, the dominion of the king, is what made the Garden of Eden paradise. Adam and Eve flourished. Life was lived to the fullest in that environment. It was the pinnacle of what life is supposed to be about. It was the way it was supposed to be, and it was all because the dominion of the king. But sin tarnished everything. Sin didn't take away our craving for a king. It just corrupted our craving it clouded our perception. Our hearts still long for a monarch. We still have this deep internal need to be ruled, but we just can't figure out who or what it's supposed to be. In Scripture, you see humanity's corrupted craving for a king early on when the people of Israel are dissatisfied with God's rule and they want their own king to be like all the other nations of the world. And humanity's craving for a monarch has never waned. It's never let up. 
I've always been intrigued by this. In 2011, it was estimated that 2 billion plus people from around the world stopped what they were doing to watch a relatively unknown woman, Kate Middleton, marry a British prince, Prince William, in a royal wedding. Why? Or in 2018, even more are said to have watched Meghan Markle marry Prince Harry. Or the last few weeks, Newsweek reported that 4.1 billion people watched Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Why is the world so infatuated with the British monarchy? Because somewhere deep down inside the whole of every human heart, there is a craving for a sovereign. There is a craving for a king. There is a craving for a monarch. And that God-designed craving was meant to push us to him. Here's the deal. If you don't acknowledge Jesus as your king, you will serve somebody. Or you will serve something else. Your heart, every human heart is going to bow its knee to something. Now you won't call it that. You might not admit it. But you're desperately craving a king. And if you don't crown Jesus, you will crown something else. You'll crown your career as a king. You'll crown your beauty as a king. You'll crown your portfolio as a king. You'll crown your sexuality as a king. You'll crown your politics as a king. You will serve somebody or something because you are hardwired for it. This search for our ruler has turned us into kingmakers. In search of our king, we bow our knees to celebrities and athletes and politicians and even pastors because we're kingmakers. One of the most sobering conversations in my life happened about 12 years ago. I was 35, 36. It happened in the small lobby of our old building when our church was quite a bit smaller. An older gentleman that I greatly respect was leaving the prayer room. He had been shut up in a prayer time with God, and he came out of that prayer room. His eyes were swollen shut. They were bloodshot and red. He just happened to catch me coming across the lobby. He walked straight up to me without any warning. He grabbed the other part, upper part of my shirt with both of his hands, clenched them in his fist, and pulled my face about two inches from him. And he said with emotion in his voice, Don't let us make you a king. He went on to say, Pastor, I'm a counselor that has been called in multiple times to help pick up the shattered pieces of what remained in the lives of well-known ministers that have crashed and burned under the weight of unhealthy expectations. And he said, Pastor Brian, I beg you, don't let us make you a king. He said, I've stared in the hollow eyes of a lot of gifted men who became shells of the men they used to be because we made them our king. We're kingmakers, pastor. The human race has been searching for a king since our rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And if you let us, we'll try to make you our king. We won't call it that, but that's what we're doing. We take rising young stars like you, leaders with charisma and gifts and anointing. We elevate you and we crown you. And then we put ungodly pressure and expectations on you that will eventually crush you. And then when we've used you up, we leave you to walk in the shattered pieces of your life while we move on to the next rising star and start the process all over again until we destroy them because we are kingmakers. It'll never work for you. It'll never work for us. You were never meant to carry the weight of those expectations. There is only one true king.
clenching my shirt with both fists, pulling me closer to his face. This elder in my church with tears running down his cheeks, his face two inches from mine, looking to me like a son, he said to me, literally, son, don't take the crown. Listen, the human heart craves a king. And if Jesus is not your king, you'll turn anybody or anything into your ruler. And lean into this. There are a lot of people that go to church and they believe in Jesus, but they're fooling themselves. They're not treating Jesus like their king. They're treating Jesus like their consultant. And there is a difference. The majority of people darkening the doors of church in America do not have a king, Jesus. They have a consultant, Jesus. So how can you know the difference? How can you know if Jesus is your king or your consultant? I'm going to give you an easy three-part pop quiz tonight, a test that you can take to help you determine whether or not Jesus is your king or your consultant. Here's a test. You can take it in your own heart tonight. Number one, you obey a king. You know you've made Jesus king when you obey him. When you do whatever he says, whether you like it or not, whether it's convenient to you or not, he's your king when you obey him. Here are some of the things the king says. Always forgive. Always. Always tell the truth. Always. Don't envy. Don't repay evil for evil, but return evil with good. Treat sex as the renewal of a commitment and a covenant between a man and a woman and a permanent exclusive marriage. There are so many more that you could, these are edicts of the king, the commands of the king. And none of us are perfect, but there's a huge difference in life, in someone's life who is treating Jesus like a king and someone who is treating Jesus like a consultant. Some of us are holding grudges. We're harboring unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart. And when we do, we're living in disobedience. We're throwing off the rule of the king and we're destroying ourselves. What we don't realize is the rule of the king was never meant to restrict us. The rule and the boundaries the king established was to help us find real life and freedom and for our lives to flourish. Life outside the rule of the king is self-destructive. If you say, you know, okay, I'm taking this test, Pastor. I mean, I'll obey if it's practical. I'll obey if it feels good. I'll obey if it's popular. If that's what you say, you're not obeying at all. Because you're just seeing Jesus' words as recommendations. But you're still the one deciding who you sleep with and when and who you forgive and when. If you look at the words of Jesus as recommendations to be considered and not commands to be obeyed, he is not your king, he's your consultant. You obey a king. But the mentality of most people, and even in the church, we have no sovereign here. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. His yoke is his rule. It's his reign. It's his way. It's his promise that if you submit to that yoke, your life will finally find fulfillment. It will finally flourish and reach its potential. It only happens under his rule, his yoke. 
Think of it like this. If you had a credibly gifted young person, whether it's athletics or maybe it's the arts, and let me, let me just use the piano as an example. Say you got a young student precociously talented with the piano. That student has to be yoked to the piano through monotony and routine and long-term consistency and practice. Now, I took piano lessons. I hated it. If you've ever had a kid take piano lessons, they don't want to do it. They have to be made to do it. But here's what happens. If they have a gift and they yoke themselves to the piano, over time, the yoke becomes a refuge. The artistic skill begins to blossom in the confinement of the yoke. The gift begins to flourish. There's a new freedom of expression and a comfort that is found and it's only born in submission to the yoke. The same is true in life. There is potential in you, in your life, that will never be realized without being yoked to his rule. Without being under the confinement of his kingship. His yoke will eventually become a refuge. Your confinement to him will eventually feel like spaciousness. Service to the king will eventually be where you find freedom. If you try to overthrow the yoke of the king in your life, it will eventually cause you to perish. His yoke, his rule, his way, his kingdom is the only way you truly find life, freedom, and flourishing. Treat him as a king. Obey him. Do whatever he says, whether it comes easy or not. You know Jesus is your king when you obey him. But here's the second part of that test. You trust a king. You know you're treating Jesus like a king when you unequivocally and absolutely trust him, which practically means you're willing to serve him no matter what happens in your life. Even when you cannot track him, you choose to trust him. When you have every reason in the world to feel like you ought to be bitter at him or mad at him because life has not met your expectations, you still choose to serve him because you trust him. A lot of people believe in Jesus until suffering comes. In my first pastorate, I had a man in the church that led more influential to people to Jesus than any person I've ever known. His name was Brent. Brent was a soul winner, had influence in the community, and everybody he encountered was hungry to meet the God that had changed his life. I mean, every day, Brent was leading somebody to Jesus that was coming to our church. Brent became ill, started suffering. We prayed with him over a couple years for God to heal him, and it never happened. The pain became very difficult. He was still working, but he lived in pain on a constantly, constant basis. And, and because he had done all this for God and the healing never came, he got bitter. He checked out. He walked away. And today, he's out of church. He's on the outs with God, and he's a very bitter man. Suffering and hardship and adversity will prove whether or not Jesus is your king or your consultant. If he is your king, you will trust him no matter what comes into your life. Job, who suffered more than any of us could ever imagine, goes on a rant about the absence of God in his suffering. And after he has spilled his guts, he reminds himself, but he knows the way I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. 
Job says, I don't understand this, but I know he's going to use this. I trust him. You know what Job was saying? Job was saying, I, could, I accept his sovereignty. I accept his rule. I accept his kingship in my life. That's trust. He was relying on him. We believe in him, but we don't rely on him. If we say we believe in Jesus, but all of our self-worth is coming from our career, then our career is our king. If your portfolio, like all of ours is at the moment, taking a bloodbath in the stock market and you can't sleep at night because of your anxiety, Jesus isn't your king, your portfolio is your king. Are you relying on him? Do you trust him? Make Jesus your king. You obey a king, you trust a king, and finally, you expect great things from a king. A true king is powerful. He is authoritative. And he resources his people through his love. He loves to show his power and his resources on the behalf of his people. So treat Jesus like a king in your prayer life. Expect great things from him. If you're pessimistic toward what Jesus can do in your life, you are not treating Jesus like a king. You need to pray big, bold, audacious prayers. As my friend Mark Batterson says, bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. The king is not offended by your biggest dreams or your bold prayers. He's offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to God, they are insulting to God. If they are not impossible to you, they are insulting to God. Why? Because they don't require his intervention. God's looking for somebody with a bold enough faith that will ask him to part a Red Sea or make the sunset still or make an iron axe head float. And it's bold, audacious prayers like that that call the king to move in omnipotent action. There is nothing the king likes more than people who are not into image management or status quo or playing it safe but willing to take steps of faith big enough that they're going to look like a fool if the king does not step in to the space that has been created created by their faith. He loves keeping promises, answering prayers, performing miracles, and fulfilling his dreams. That's who he is. That's what a king does. The great hymn writer John Newton, famous for amazing grace, wrote another hymn. He wrote many, but in another hymn, he penned this, talking to us, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can never ask too much. None can ever ask too much. He's the king. You obey a king, you trust a king, you expect great things from a king. If Jesus is the king, why does that matter to you? Because it means he's in control. You know, I'm a little concerned about Christians. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Every November, especially during major election cycles, people that are normally sane lose their minds. I'm like, what in the world? And I mean, people, they come to me in my church like, Pastor, do you see what's happening? Do you? I'm like, yeah, I see that. 
Well, why aren't you stressed out about it? <laughs> because I serve the king. You don't, you don't understand. I serve a king. When I go to bed at night and say, hey, Jared's checking out. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's not nervous. He hasn't gone on vacation. He didn't take a break. He's not fretting. He's not worried. You have to realize he is in control of who is in control. That's why it matters. He's in control. The only thing we can do in a service like this, we're going to give him space to be king tonight. The only thing we can do between now and that prayer of faith is to crown him. We're going to crown him. Okay? I don't know why I'm about to say this to you. I can't get this out of my heart. I don't know if this is a word for faith. This was not a part of the sermon. I don't even know how it connects. But as I prepared for the last several days for this moment, I'm supposed to tell you this. We've been talking about this at my church. We've been in a drought in Texas. Hadn't rained in a long time. Every now and then a thundercloud will pop up. We live out on the ranch and it's dry and dusty. Our grass is dry. Wildfires are burning property. But my granddad taught me what rain smelled like when I was a little boy. I was out walking the other day praying for rain. And I smelled, a thunderstorm was a little ways away, coming our way, and I smelled it. I smelled rain. And some of you that never smelled rain, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, you're saying, Pastor, rain is felt, not smelt. No, I promise you can smell rain. My grandfather had a little nine-in tractor. It's a red and gray Ford nine-in tractor, and I eight nine-in, a Ford Jubilee, different versions, and I grew up in their home because of family dysfunction. I used to put my foot on the axle, lean up against the, the fender of that, and I'd ride with my granddad everywhere he'd go on the farm. One day we were on the far back side of his little farm. It hadn't rained in forever. I'll tell you something about my granddad. He was a farmer. He would get, he would get the, the prayer meetings together for the farmers in that area. When I was little, they'd pray for rain. It hadn't rained in weeks. And every time my granddad would go to one of those prayer meetings, he'd carry an umbrella with him. And I'd say, Papa, why are you carrying an umbrella? He said, who goes to a prayer meeting to pray for rain and doesn't carry an umbrella? Sometimes faith is the willingness to look foolish. I'm riding on the tractor with him. And he said, boy, we, we better get back. It's about to rain. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, it hadn't rained in weeks. It's dry. There's no, he said, I smell it. And that's when I told him, you don't smell rain, Papa. Oh, you feel rain. He said, no, Brian, you can smell it. He said, when, when the dust that is in the air mixes with the moisture that is headed this way and the wind that is blowing the cloud, our direction starts missing with the moisture. You get the fragrance of the rain before the cloud ever gets here. The wind is blowing in your direction. 
I thought he was crazy. He turned the tractor around. We quit. We went back as we started to pull into that sheet metal shed row. Those big drops of rain that splatter in the dust when it hadn't rained in a long time started falling right outside the barn. And we sat under that sheet metal shed. And it's what we called a gully washer when the bottom fell out and it rained and it rained and it rained. It marked me. I never forgot the smell of rain. A few weeks ago, I smelled it before it ever got there. And the Lord prophetically spoke to me. And I got up the next Sunday and I said to my church, I know it's dark. I know there's nothing in the environment that makes it look like it. But God is positioning us. He is setting us up. There is a storm cloud on the horizon. There is an earth shattering move of God that is about to awaken this church. The cloud burst is about to happen. It's going to rain. I know I sound like a fool, but I smell rain. I smell rain. I smell rain. I believe the king is coming. I believe the rain is coming. I smell rain come on stand with me all over this place everywhere I go in Dallas people I don't even know them they come up to me and say I go to North Place Pastor and I smell rain I got a text from my staff this morning I know you're in Orlando we smell rain here let's hope it rains in Orlando today I believe it's going to rain I'm going to give you some direction in a minute. And we're going to fill these altars in some three specific areas. And believe God, the the rain, R-E-I-G-N, and the R-A-I-N, the rain, God is going to come in this place tonight. I believe that. But we're just going to crown him. I wish I hadn't stretched my voice out before I got here because I'd want to crown him for a minute. Holy Ghost, give me enough voice. You say, but pastor, I don't know how to crown him. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. How do you crown him as king? Then just just tell him who he is. Just just tell him who he is. If you don't know, if you don't know what else to say, the Bible is full of names for him. I mean, just tell him who he is. For me, when I don't know what else to say, I just call him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the bread of life, the bright and morning star, the counselor, the chief cornerstone, the door, the deliverer, elect, Emmanuel, everlasting father, the hope of glory, the lily of the valley, the light of the world, the master, the messiah, the mighty God, the prophet, the propitiation, the rabbi, the rock, the rose of Sharon, the root of Jesse, the son of God, the seed of David, the way, the wonderful, the word, his name is Jesus. Crown him. Crown him. Crown him. Come on. Before we come to this altar tonight, would you just crown him? Crown him. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. Thank you for joining us in pursuit of growing closer to Christ. Stay tuned for more messages released every week. God bless.